Hello, beloved survivors. This week, we are offering up a replay of our interview with Charlene Carruthers, who we believe is one of the many electoral geniuses in Black feminist organizing today. Enjoy, learn, pass on what you learn. Vote. I'm Autumn Brown, a queer science fiction writer, a theologian, a mother of dragons, and a healing justice facilitator for social movements, living in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wow, nothing has ever been lauded in such a way. And I am Adrienne Marie Brown, author of Emergent Strategy and Pleasure Activism, and the forthcoming yet-to-be-named book about facilitation and mediation. Damn, I thought you were about to say the name. Yeah, no, why would I do that? I need to copyright or copy left or copy. I need to make sure it's officially mine before I tell you. <laughs> copy um, left it. Um, but that's not all that you should know about me. I also live in Detroit. <laughs> and I am T minus two months away from my sabbatical. Yay. And this is our podcast, How to Survive the End of the World. We've been on break. And so this is our first show back where we're actually talking to each other in real time and have a guest. So I'm excited for what this is going to feel like, you know, it's like a whole, it's a whole different world. The dust and the rust falls away. Um, and today we have someone who is extremely, extremely exciting to have as a guest, um, on any show, but especially on this show right now, her name is Charlene Carruthers. She, um, maybe, Maybe is still best known for her leadership at the Black Youth Project 100, but is also the author of the book Unapologetic, which came out last year and which she has been touring and being super famous around and um, is actually creating a whole ass school in Chicago and some other things. So we are excited to get to speak with you. And I want to let people know on the front end that the reason we wanted to talk to you is because... We are entering election season again, and I remember you during the last election being like, why do I have to care about this? I'm not going to. And then I remember after the election, you being like, oh, I think I would have done that differently if I had it to do over again, and I want to approach it differently coming into this next election. And I'm in the place where I'm like, I really don't want to care about this election yet. Like, I don't think I should have to care until a couple of months beforehand, but so I want to I want to have you on to talk with us about how are you going about caring this time? What feel like the important things to be caring about this time? Or are you still like, nah, I said that, but actually I don't care. So are you endorsing, you know, different things like that? I would love for us to have that conversation. Um, Autumn, anything to add on the intro part? Well, and I think one of the other things that we were really excited to talk to you, Charlene, about is, you know, um, thinking, um, thinking about the impact to uh, local political and movement work, um, or I should say the impact to other movement and political work, whether locally or nationally, by the election cycles, because... Right. Like we are we are nearing, um, you know, local elections for for many communities. There are like um, there are local elections coming in addition to the fact that we're in the ramp up to the next national election cycle. Um, And um, 
but all of the entire cycle has such a sustained and multi-varied impact to the other kinds of movement work that we're doing. Um, and so that was another one of the pieces that we wanted to um, hear some of your best thinking about, like wh- how do you see the impact and also um, what is your advice to organizers for how we mitigate the impact of the election cycle to the other movement work that we're doing? Um, and then I personally am like have been very, very checked out of the political process because of things that have been going on in my life over the last year. Um, and so I'm really excited to be coming into this conversation as someone who really has not been paying attention to what's happening, actually. Like I feel I feel as though I'll be having this conversation as though I was someone who was lost on a desert island for the last nine months and just got back to the US. And I'm like, I have to relearn how to cook and also elections. So, yeah, I'm really I'm really curious to hear uh, to hear to be in this conversation from that perspective. So, Charlene, we introduced you. If you were to introduce yourself today in this moment, what would you want people to know about you? What feel like the important things right in this current time? Oh, wow. No one yeah. ever asked me to introduce myself in any of the 50,000 conversations I've been in in mm. I don't know how many years. And so I, I, I don't know how I feel about this question, but I'm going to rock with it because <laughs> uh, I am very happy to be on, like, in conversation with y'all. Y'all are amazing and dope and just all the things. And so, yeah, so Charlene Antoinette Carruthers, Mm. Um, I say your full name. (laughs) Yeah, I would say my, (laughs) I I guess started there, I would say my full name. I would also introduce myself as a lifelong student and Mm. someone who has always been curious and asked 50 million questions about the world around me. And so what that's led me to doing is like committing to political study over my lifetime in Black feminisms and, uh, the black radical tradition and all things surrounding like really nerdy things like political economy. And also I'm a a huge student of like black or uh, African diasporic food ways, basically how black people eat around the world and how we carry our memories, our history through our food. And even like thinking about my ancestors, coming through the Middle Passage, one of the ways that they held on to memories of where they came from was through the food that they prepared once they arrived anywhere in the Western Hemisphere, frankly, uh, not just here in the, in the United States. I will also introduce myself as a, as a friend and um, what else? Someone with a great sense of humor. Uh, yeah, I think so. And then, you know, all the other stuff like fellowships and awards and publishing, that that's all right. But I just feel like I've just like gotten to the tip of the iceberg. And I'm not I'm not even the t- I'm not at the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the um, the work that I've done. Or maybe it's like actually all y'all have seen is the tip of the iceberg. I'm thinking about all the workshops I've been in. All y'all have seen is like the tip and then there's so many other things below the surface that are actually like what is going to surface at some point because, you know, climate change is real. And that's right. Our ice is melting. <laughs> so, 
I wow, really love what you did with that. Out. I love what you did with that. You said what you need to know is I'm the future that's going to flood your banks. That's what you need Ooh. to know. Charlene Antoinette Carruthers. Mm-hmm. I don't know where that came from, but I mean, it, 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 you just were like, I'm the future. <laughs> You're like, I'm covering every single base. I'm covering it all. So I really love that you brought in that piece around food because I want before we go to recommend to people your Instagram stories because you really do sit on Instagram stories and cook whole ass meals from taking us shopping with you or taking us out into your garden to, you know, what is the layering of flavor that you're going to do in the kitchen while also referencing our historical um, traditions that are flowing through the food. And it's actually, it makes me like, when are you getting a cooking show? Um, So maybe that's down in the lower iceberg area. Um, So could you tell us a little bit now about that 2016 election lesson, right? Like kind of how you how you move through that election and what what do you feel like you learned that is is shaping how you're moving now? Oh, my goodness. So, in 2016, I was actually in a bunch of different conversations about the election, like leading up to uh leading up to November. So, I was in conversations with people like Dr. Barbara Ransby, leaders across the movement for Black Lives, folks like struggling across the different movements. And I remember being a little shit about the orange menace that's now in the White House. And what I mean by being a little shit is being super liberal and how I understood Hillary Clinton and yes. how I understood him. 45, right. the orange menace, orange, whatever we want to call it, the white, the white man occupying the White House right now. And not having a very solid analysis of the terrain that would be created if he were elected. Not like, and not doing my due diligence and saying, actually, if he wins, this is what's gonna happen to the entire federal court system. This is what's gonna happen to the Supreme Court. And this is how we will, our, my people, I will be impacted for generations to come as long as, you know, the U.S. government even stands in existence. I also remember um, not moving past my very clear critique of Hillary Clinton, which I still stand by my critique of Hillary Clinton and, and her past, but it should have been a yes and. Like, like this is this and this is the, like the, the reality that we are going into. And so we have a choice to make about what kind of terrain we want to organize in what who do we mm. want to fight with who do we want to contend with and black people didn't lose the election i'm clear about that we are not the reason why hillary clinton lost the election i do think that we serve that 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 i have some role in articulating no matter what election it is like what's at stake and what is our possible role and what are our options like I didn't even say these are our options here in like a real clear way and saying you make the choice based on these options. And so I think I was too neutral and neutrality is still a position. It is still Mm -hmm. a position. Uh, And yeah, that's what I really learned from 2016 and that moving even beyond 2016 into the the midterms, um, the midterms following that, 
I was like, look, this is a, all, so much of this is about uh, doing the work to, of course, push issues, not candidates, and also to see this as like, it's a long-term political project. What is, I, I'm not too comfortable with always like applying harm reduction language to this political shit. I think sometimes it's overused and it's misused. It's misapplied, I think sometimes. Um, but I do think that there's something too saying, what kind of blows do we not want to take? Charlene, can you slow down right there? There's two things in what you said that I just want you to like shine a little bit more light on. When you say, I was too liberal about this, can you just break that down for folks? So like, here's what I mean when I say that, because I think it's become a really helpful shorthand inside of movements to be able to reference like that, that whole framework. And then the other piece is um, about what you just said, right? It's just sort of like, oh, how did you know? How did you measure? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I say I was too liberal, I say, I say, I, I, what I mean is that I didn't actually dig deep and I was real surface level and all like too much was okay for me to say, like too much was okay to go into like uh, my decisions and what I did and what I didn't do. And if I was actually being principled and uh, radical in my approach, I would have had a much more concrete analysis of what was happening and not just any old message, not just any old set of polling data or, and I would have needed more, more concrete things. And liberalism, I think, uh, as I understand it, it allows for too much. It doesn't have very clear boundaries. Um, it's not very disciplined. And so I was not disciplined in my like, approach to understanding and even communicating what was going on. And so I, I hope that's more con a more concrete. I think the last part is most important about being disciplined. Yeah, I think that's it, right? That I think that really landed it. And then the piece on harm reduction, when you say you don't want to use that just blanket over everything, can you talk about the dangers of overuse or using it incorrectly? Yeah, I mean, so I, I've been, I just started with the Chicago Center, a learning circle uh, on Mariam Kaba and Shira Hassan's book, a workbook, Fumbling Towards Repair. And they actually include some history about harm reduction and about like where it comes from and it coming out of, you know, uh, LGBTQ communities, communities dealing with, um, with addiction. Uh, and, uh, and I hope that's the right language. I don't have the exact definition but coming out of those communities and people saying, actually, you know, we need clean needles. So we are not dying or we're not contracting things um, against, you know, that, that we don't have to contract or acquire. Um, we actually need to be able to do our work with, with safety as sex workers. Like we should be able to do those things and you need to create these systems for us, right? And so I think um, you need to decriminalize the work that we do. Uh, and provide us with resources and services, all of those things. And so when we apply harm reduction, in my view, to politics without some, like, some discipline, we can, we can ignore that we're talking about addressing the needs of marginalized and oppressed people. And that these groups of people are more oftentimes than not, if not always the ones who are going to bear the brunt of terrible policy. You know, some, some people may feel it a little less, 
than the people who are more vulnerable to like shitty economic policies. And so that should be the driver of harm reduction, not, you know, so the middle class doesn't hurt more or people who don't like deal with, or upper class people don't hurt more, or we just don't let the whole system collapse. But actually it is meant to be there to, 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 to address the needs of marginalized and oppressed people. Mm. I so appreciate the, the wisdom of that, you know, the redefining, like who is harm reduction actually for. And I think it brings up for me a really complicated question that felt both complicated before and after the 2016 election, because one of the things I remember being a point of contention during that election cycle was um, for our long range goal of ultimately abolishing the system. Is it, is it better to have someone elected who destabilizes the system even further and whose presence in office exposes more of the hard realities or gives us um, a better target to fight? And I remember one of the complaints that I could I was hearing from folks internally, often folks who were in like lead um, frontline movement work saying, you know, we don't want a Clinton in office who will create the same progressive shield that Obama had around what's happening with undocumented immigrants in this country, you know, and the level of crisis that is there. We want a Trump because that gives us a clear target and it's easier to mobilize our people, right? So it was it was interesting to, like, hear that, hear that as a, a strategy that folks really believed was um, feasible and to what we've actually witnessed, I think, my perception in the in the wake of the 2016 election is that um, our movement infrastructure wasn't in there wasn't a movement infrastructure on the left to actually support um, responding to a target like Trump. Right. <laughs> and so I think that to me, there is this question, you know, as we sit. In, in this particular moment, gearing up for the next election cycle or in some cases being inside of, you know, special election cycles or um, local election cycles. What does it mean to, you know, what is it? How do how do we orient um, at the right scale to a target? With a knowledge of what our infrastructure can actually what our movement infrastructure can actually support in terms of a fight. So, like you said, we now have an example of what mm-hmm. happens when a tyrannical or tyrannical like leader is in the White House. And we now have enough <laughs> like information to gauge actually how will movement react to it? What will happen? How will people be impacted? And so I'm most interested now and like, okay, so this thing has happened. What have y'all learned from this like argument that actually we need a terrible person in office so that everybody can get up off of their asses and organize? So now we have enough evidence to point towards what could happen, what would ha- whatever it is. No longer just a hypothetical thing. 
So I actually didn't agree with that approach in 2016. That actually, maybe we do just need someone. We need a, we need specifically Trump in office so that uh, people can be jarred or we, we having Hillary Clinton in office won't do the thing that we need to happen in this moment. And I believe that we have to ask the questions again, like who will be impacted if this person is elected? And what, and, and I think that that point of view, if people are still saying that, I hope people are not still saying that. I feel that that position is short-sighted because as you said, I, and I agree, I don't think we have the movement infrastructure to adequately combat the things that, that this administration has put forth. Like, where was the, judici the judiciary strategy? Where was the plan for that? You know, where, where was the plan save, you know, a few organizations to completely block him and his administration from appointing people to the Supreme Court? Where was where was the plan for that? And I'm and I'm not saying that nobody thought about it, but it is clear that it was insufficient. And some of that is tied to the Democrats that are in office. And a lot of it is is tied to the Democrats that are in office. So I'm I just been learning more and more about that. Who anticipated that they would strike transgender people from like all language on the CDC website or the Center for Disease Control website? Who predicted that? Who predicted the assault on um, LGBTQ students in schools? Who predicted that? And I'm not saying nobody did because I actually do know of at least one far left formation that endorsed Hillary Clinton because they had an assessment of what was possible. So there were some people who absolutely got it um, for sure. It wasn't me. It was not me. And so I just, I, I now that unfortunately some people have had to feel that that boot on their neck more harshly than others where was the plan to you know for the the crisis at the u.s mexico border uh, what was it where was where were all these this in this and i think some of it was grandstanding and some of it was like being liberal and not being disciplined enough to go through a rigorous assessment and I, I include myself in that, again, not being disciplined enough and not having a rigorous enough assessment. Because where we can go from here now, you know, is in the vein of what I've been like learning um, from Amelia uh, Cabral and saying that we have to be real clear about the reality. Like, where are we now? Not like, let's get grounded in reality. Not like the, what we feel is what it is, but let's get a real grounded assessment of what is happening right now, the concrete like conditions um, that we're within. And we are, yes, still under capitalism. That. You know, we are, yes, still under capitalism. We are, yes, still under this, like this, the electoral college, all this stuff. Like you That's still right. have to raise hundreds of millions of dollars to be president. Well, so I want to ask you about that. There's so much humility, Charlene, in what you're saying and how you're showing up in it, right? That it was like, this was not happening and also I was not doing it. And I share that, you know, that I was like, this is not my thing. I did electoral organizing in my 20s. And I, I understand that, you know, there's some need to engage in it as a protection device. But generally, that's not where I want to put most of my political energy in life. And we had Toshi Reagan on the show. And she made such a beautiful case for um, the responsibility of adults in this time is actually to be the ones who are like, 
I'm going to show up and vote strategically to make more room for young people who may or may not have the analysis yet to do that, you know, who may be like, I'm just taking to the streets. Fuck this. It's all falling apart. This is the time. Because I remember that phase of my activism, too, when I was like, this is the moment. It's all about to fall down. And you do show up a different way and you participate a different way when you're like, this is it right now, you know. Um, And then there's a different way as you get older and you start to feel like, oh, I've lived through several moments where it felt like this is the moment. And what is starting to become more important to me is generating movements that can sustain through the ebbs and flows of different kinds of energies, different kinds of um, focus, right? And both the electoral and non-electoral, right? Because I feel like this is, we're in the ebb and flow of that now, like every four years, what every two years, um, all the attention drains out of everything else that we're working on into elections and then trickles back and then drains and then trickles back. And what I'm seeing right now is our movement leaders not only are struggling to have the capacity to meet the fights that are coming down every single day on a different front line, um, but struggling just to keep themselves together, right? Like everyone is going through health crises, relationship crises, organizational crises, like familial crises. Like we are barely making it through this brush with fascism. And so I'm like, you know, to me, this moment of turning and facing electoral strategy from a reality-based perspective is about acknowledging like, and being humble about where we are and where we need to get to, right? Like, oh, we need to get ourselves to a state where we can actually sustain what we're doing as movement and then figure out how do we radicalize inside of that container, like with a, with a more stable foundation. Um, and that's been hard for me to admit because I'm like, capitalism must fall now. You know, like there's a huge part of me that is like that's happening And also, while it happens, our movements need to be growing. And we've been shrinking in a lot of ways because we're running out of steam. We're running out of um, fight. We're running out of energy. Um, And the onslaughts are so fast. So I kind of want to ask you, when did you pivot and how, right? How did you, you know, how did you get from where you were in 2016 to where you are now and what does that pivot look like in action? Like, what have you? What are you doing differently this time around? Wow, <laughs> I'm I'm probably thinking about this because um, I've done some genital somatics work with you. But the first thing that comes to mind is a two step that mm. um, you all teach us. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and being able mm-hmm. to breathe through change and know that change and transition you know, Octavia Butler teaches us as well. Like these things are always happening. And then making a choice, like a, a, an informed choice, a fully informed choice about how I want to move through those changes and those transitions. And none of the, I don't think any of my realities of, or like my realizations rather about electoral stuff is in a vacuum. Like you mentioned all these changes that people are going through. Like, I, basically listed a bunch of changes that I'm going through myself um, that I've I've been through. (laughs) So I've had to like buck up for lack of better words around what I believe in, how I do the work. I've had to change my pace. I've had to change the kinds of things that I commit to. Like I recently joined the Women's March Board. I would have never done that, you know, a year ago. I would have never done that. 
And it was, it was a choice based on, mm, what kind of impact do I want to make in the 2020 elections, knowing that the terms would be through, through that time. And so I think the pivot happened sometime, sometime after I transitioned out of my role as national director at BYP 100 and just talking to people all over the world and uh, really you know, all over the world and um, thinking, hearing different things and really checking my own self um, and my own ego around my, and also not being liberal about the influence that I have uh, in, in, in the world or in this country or wherever, because I, I do have influence. Oh, yes, you do, baby. Mm -hmm. Yes, you do. (laughs) I feel like I don't. It's actually like really unprincipled and irresponsible. And I have like, I choose to like, you know, take responsibility for what I say and what I do. And it doesn't mean that I'm by no means like a a robot or or I watch every single word I say or whatever. You catch me at 3 a.m. on Twitter, I'm bound to be saying any damn thing um, in the middle of the night. And I'm also clear that, you know, I mean, that's a part of who I am. And I think that's something that maybe like people gravitate gravitate towards. And so I take that seriously. And so, yeah, the shift, the pivot, and it was just having a bunch of really, like, good conversations and also just seeing the terrible things happening. Like, if I see all this terrible stuff happening, for me, I was just like, how can I just sit back? I like, it's okay. And that I have no role in stopping it from happening again. And that's, I, that's why I'm choosing to show up differently. Mm. So beautiful. I, I'm I'm curious to know about um, y- y- something you said earlier, Charlene, about um, being issue focused, not candidate focused. I wonder about um, in your own political work how what strategies or tactics you've used to be able to maintain an issue focus inside of an electoral cycle that is so individual and personality focused. Um, And whether you see people, I'm just especially given how broad your perspective is on what's happening in in electoral and movement work right now, are you seeing any like significant strategic or tactical changes that people are making in their work in order to be able to continue pushing issues front and center instead of like, um, instead of being susceptible to the, the, it, the hyper individualism of the electoral cycle. Mm-hmm. So I'm a part of this effort called black women Four, and it's basically uh, a project focused on black women, gender non-conforming and non-binary folks. Uh, and, and our engagement in the 2020 Democratic presidential primary. And I'm a member of the steering committee for that. And what I feel really confident in saying is that our first conversations, our earliest conversations were about what do we want from anybody? And, and who, ha- who is going to actually be best positioned to move on the things that we want to see happen? And that's the way we moved in BYP 100 as well. It was like, taking the time to say, what do we care about? What are our issues? 
and that this is independent of any candidate, independent of any political party, and we're gonna move on these things that we care about regardless of who's running and go from there. And also use like public organizing to ask people, you know, what side are you on? Like who, what do you actually support? And um, for better or for worse, so much of US politics comes down to the candidate at some point. And so it's all, it's so much of it is about what do you do leading up to election day, leading up to whatever candidate like finally makes it on the ballot, what is happening in order to move that person towards the agenda that I have as a part of a broader group, which is another really important piece. It, it can't just be about Charlene, my single like uh, uh, set of issues that I care about. That's, there's only a certain kind of power there and it's very limited. The power really comes when it's organized with larger groups of people and that are that is it's clearly even clearly defined and has a clear set of values and a clear set of demands that's where that's where so much of the power comes from and i do plan to like publicly support a candidate but i'm not gonna I, he, what you won't see from me is like the first thing you will you will see the first thing you see from me will be a reflection of a collective effort it will not be <laughs> it will not be just like my facebook mm -hmm. post about who i'm endorsing kind of thing and you know i've thought about that quite a bit and i'm not gonna like shade other people who've done that and it's important for me that how i express who i support is always seen in relationship to something that's bigger than me as an individual and that go you know that's that that goes back to my organizer values and it's also you like when when i'm all, when I bring up the question, <clears throat> when I bring up the question that Ella Baker would ask of who are your people, like I want you, I want to be able to name who my people are when I'm making any grand announcements about anything. And that it's not just me who's out here thinking this thing. Uh, because that, yeah, that actually paints a, a much uh, more narrow picture of, of, of what's happening when it's just me saying it. I really, really appreciate that because I definitely have been in the like, uh, so, you know, I saw Roxanne Gay came out supporting Elizabeth Warren and I was like, how you do that? Maybe I should just do that. You know, like I've also been in this question, like, how do I responsibly use my influence? She seems to be the person who's moving with plans. Um, I'd love to hear if you're like, you know, as you're thinking through, oh, okay, what are the things that we're longing for? You know, how you're seeing some of those candidates moving in them. But before we get to that place, I'd love to also hear the concern I also have in elections is always how do I not drop everything I work I'm working on and I care about while also responsibly redistributing some of this attention and focus over into the elections. And so I'd love to know for you, I know that you've been in the process of starting a school. I know that you're doing other pieces of work. How are you balancing? Like and how do you plan to balance between now and the end of 2020? between the ongoing work you have and the electoral, you know, the work, the way the election pulls that attention and focus. So first, um, I want to, I just, I want to go back to that last one in that Adrian, if you feel like you just want to post some shit and say who you support, you should do that. I also have an opportunity for you to sign on to something. If you're interested, <laughs> I'll send it to you. I am interested. I mean, because I will say this, like my honest truth is I'm ready to go on sabbatical 
I'm I'm part of why I wanted to go on sabbatical in 2020 is because I'm like I just don't have the energy for this dance again right now, right? Like I feel like I've done several of these elections and mostly I just feel really annoyed at how we do them and that's part of why we're doing this podcast. You know, I was saying this to my friends and one of my friends Jody was like, "Well, y'all should do a podcast that's an election roundup that like helps people blah blah." And I was like, "Let's just get Charlene on here to break it all down for us and like I will that will be part of me doing my part (laughs) right it's like having you come and talk to people um and part of us Autumn and I doing our part because I'm like you know we are anarchist Buddhist people like we're just over here like when is this all the apocalypse everything's over so anyway all that to say (laughs) that I do feel you're revealing too much Adrian (laughs) I mean that's why we're here so I do feel like there's a part of me that's like I do want to have an informed process and I, I always, you know, I'm like, I let stuff be fed to me, right, by the people that I trust. And I think to me, that's a part of my integrity and that has been a part of my integrity is I'm like, I'll tell you where I got the information from and I will let myself be used. If y'all are going to place me in a celebrity space that I didn't ask for, then I, I will use it the way I want to use it, which is like, okay, cool. Like, let's use it to uplift the people that I trust because you know, there is this commitment to celebrity culture, a commitment to um, moving moving with leadership in that way. And it's very hard to move ideas if you don't play some of it. So I appreciate that. I'll play some of it. And I want to ask, you know, because for me, I'm like, I have books to write. And part of what I'm going to be doing is going away and writing them. Some of them are fiction. Some of them are nonfiction. Like there's a lot that's flowing out of me and I want to let it flow. And I'm like, then there's other projects to start. And so I want to, yeah, that question, like, how are you balancing it all? Also, are you going to tell us about your fiction writing? Yeah. So how am I balancing it all? I have very, like, the amount of time that I spend on the electoral stuff is spread out. And, like, I try to make only so many commitments. And so the Black Women for stuff that I'm doing, like, I, I hosted, a, I co-hosted a meetup here in Chicago you know, we have our steering committee calls on a regular basis, but I'm not knocking on doors. I'm not making phone calls. I'm not, I'm not anybody's surrogate or any campaign. Like, and I could be doing those things. And those are all things that I think people should absolutely do. And I will do them closer to election day. Like that's when I will do those things. And so my pace for the electoral stuff right now is super slow. It's not every, it's not like all consuming of my time. Um, I do have other things going on. Um, Building the Chicago Center, we like have been hosting programming for the past several months now, um, since June, since we opened in June. Uh, And also my writing, like I'm on the hook right now for two articles uh, that I have to get out, get out the door in the, the next couple of weeks. And then I'm working on a novel and that is like the novel is a part of um i don't know getting my creative self out in the world in a different way than i have before and also like doing political work in a different way because there's no i mean everything i write is going to be political there's no such thing as like i'm not going to do anything that's apolitical and so um i'm i was thinking through like how else can i reach people that and um, do this work in a way that doesn't hit them on the head like a you know a straight up political article, and I think that I will be able to reach a much broader audience di- and different people through fiction writing. And so 
the story that I'm working on right now is, uh, what, what can I say? It's, of course, based here in Chicago. It is about Black mothers and daughters and Black people. And it is about um, working to tell a more complete story about Black people's lives in the 80s and the 90s. And all the things that were happening in, in that, not all the things, but a lot of things that were happening in that time period. And so I've been really happy with like creating these goals for myself and basically competing with myself to, re to reach like word count goals. Like uh, today I have like 800 more words to write so I can reach my goal. And it, it's the way my, my brain works really well in doing stuff like that and setting goals and feeling really accomplished. And it's like my accomplishment. It's not some staff or membership <laughs> or like client that I'm working for or anything like that. Like right now I am my only like judge in this. And that, that feels really good to not have to seek approval <laughs> from other people yet. That feels <laughs> like freedom, right? yes. Yeah, like at some point an editor will get it, you know, at some point, other readers will, you know, give feedback. But for now, I get to just put all these ideas out that are in my head on a page. And when I think about how pe how organizers who are like, I'm not with this shit of electoral organizing, it doesn't, it, it could or could not, it doesn't have to be your full life. And it's like, just like anything else that you care about or that you do, what are the contributions that you can make and how does it fit into the broader, like, puzzle of your life like how these things can fit in and like what is it that you can do that will that is aligned with your values that will allow you to sleep at night or allow you to like g like wake up or move from day to day and like feel like yourself and I think that there's so many spaces where that could happen Thank you so much. I really, really, really appreciate you saying that because I feel like so often, so much of this conversation gets caught up in, I can't, none of these candidates are perfect alignment with my politic and so I won't play the game. And it feels like you just like really brought everyone into accountability that's like, we are still living inside the shell of the old and we are still in a certain game um, where survival is on the line and the people who are bearing the brunt of it are those who are um, the most marginalized and most oppressed already. You know, like I have been in classroom after classroom as a somatics teacher where folks are talking about the deportations that their families are surviving right now and also saying, I'm an organizer. This is happening to my family. This is happening right now. And I just feel like every time I hear that, I want to turn and face these people who are like, oh, I don't really fucks with it because like this, that. I'm like, that's not your call. You have to be accountable to call. a larger exactly. community. Yep. You have to be accountable mm -hmm. to a larger community. And I think Toshi said that well too, but it's just like the electoral process is not where you, that should not be the extent of your personal political engagement. It should just be, this is one of the many tactics we're using to cover our folks so that we can actually be moving radical policy further along. So thank you so much. You're so brilliant. I'm so excited about this novel. And I know the graphic novel and the movie and everything else is going to be flowing out of you for Chicago. I'm so excited about this school, the Chicago Center, and just watching you step into further and further leadership and unveil more and more of the ice that is coming to us for mm -hmm. you. Um, ice as water. 
ISS water flowing everywhere. <laughs> Charlene is the best. Folks can find me at um, charlenecarruthers.com. You can find the Chicago Center uh, for Leadership and Transformation at weareccelt.org. Uh, Thanks for listening to our show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash show. Another incredibly helpful thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you are an iPhone person, I was just reading them and those reviews were giving me my life. So thank you. People really that. love us. Jeez. You know, so cute. If you enjoyed this taste of Charlene, please make sure you follow up with her in all the ways that you can. Um, and we want to thank our producer. Um, How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the incomparable Big Daddy, Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran and Mother Cyborg. And also buy Charlene's book, Unapologetic, wherever books are sold. Oh, Charlene, wait. We do this thing called Easter eggs where we give the listeners like one more little droplet of something is there something in pop culture that you have been consuming that you just want to put us up on oh i mean okay so you know i am a, a chicago supremacist if anyone else anybody who knows me probably knows i did about- not see that coming right oh surprise well, we have some of the dopest artists writers and thinkers in this city and Jamila Woods is one of my favorite. <gasps> I haven't listened to her yes. album yet. I listen to it almost daily <laughs> and people should totally check Jamila Woods out. She's touring all the time uh, and yeah, she's super dope but she's a nice person in real life and even if she weren't a nice she person she'll listen to her music. <laughs> That's right. Mean people deserve love, too. Thank you so much, Charlene.